0: Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash etm.
1: Mental health anguish is really significant for individuals. Um, I just want everyone to know that it is not your fault. The system is designed to actually create medical debt, unfortunately. Um, I don't know if that was like, it's not like an intentional thing that, like, it's like, let's create a system that creates medical debt, but it is a feature. I mean, it really is a feature today of our our system.
0: Welcome to Everyone's Talking Money Podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Game. There's no judgment, no dumb questions, just smart conversations about you and your money. So come on in and grab a seat. Everyone is welcome here. Did you know there is $195 billion of medical debt outstanding? And in fact, medical debt is the leading cause of bankruptcy here in the U.S., If you have been to a hospital or even a doctor recently, you know, even with insurance, getting healthcare in this country means you often have to pay out of pocket in a big way. That is frustrating, my friend. My dear friend, Shannon, she died of cancer a few years ago, and she was staring down piles of bills all while trying to fight a terminal disease. And that was with good health insurance. That is unacceptable to me. The truth is, you shouldn't be put in financial ruin for walking through the door to a hospital or a medical provider. We are all human beings, the last time I checked, and we all deserve to have affordable and accessible medical care. That is end of story. However, as our guest, Allison Sesso, Executive Director of RIP Medical Debt, says, the system was not set up for success in the first place. Allison joins us on a riveting episode uncovering the who, what, when, where, and why behind medical debt and offers some great advice if you're currently in medical debt. Some of her advice includes knowing hospital financial assistance programs, never putting medical debt on a credit card, and making sure you know the loopholes for your insurance plan. Oh yes, we dig deep in this episode to give you an education and actionable tips. Let's start talking. Allison, I am so, so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Oh, I so much appreciate being here. I love talking about medical debt.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's great. That is what this episode is all about. And I was doing a lot of research before our conversation. And one really scary stat that stood out to me was that medical debt is the leading cause of bankruptcy in the US. I mean, I know that, but still, every time I read that, it just it's really shocking to me. So I, I've been looking forward to this conversation for, for quite some time. And I know this is a big old can of worms that we're about to open up here in so many different areas. But, you know, why do we have so much medical debt in this country? Why is this happening?
1: Well, I mean, the bottom line is that we have a, a for-profit healthcare financing system that incentivizes uh, a. a profit making. And because of that, I think at the end of the day, we end up with um, more and more costs being pushed down to the consumer. And we need to fix that. I mean, what I really like to focus on is what happens at the end of the day, which is that the expectation that the individual pay a lot of money out of pocket really needs to be fixed. But When we're thinking about our uh, system of healthcare, that we need to be really revisiting how much we expect people to pay out of their own pocket.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're going to hopefully dive deep into that. Before we do though, I'm a big fan of talking about like the mental health repercussions that debt really has on us when we're in debt. I know that because money is the number one cause of stress and and debt usually is somewhere in that equation. So, you know, I would imagine that with medical debt there's there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of shame that comes along with that. So, Anyone listening right now where that's really resonating with them, do you have any, maybe like a calming words of wisdom of those listening right now that are in medical debt? Like, how can they maybe reframe their mindset around, you know, being in this place.
1: Yeah, I am so glad that you brought that up because I think it's one of the elements that is often underappreciated about the impact of medical debt. And it's like the number one thing that we hear from people who we've assisted and abolished their debt for Um the mental health anguish is really significant for individuals. Um, I just want everyone to know that it is not your fault. The system is designed to actually create medical debt, unfortunately. Um, I don't know if that was like, it's not like an intentional thing that like, it's like, let's create a system that creates medical debt, but it is a feature. I mean, it really is a feature today of our, of our system. Um, You're, you're likely to not be able to afford insurance that uh, covers your full costs. There's so many loopholes within the system that you could easily fall through someone not being in network, not being in the right state when you need, you know, you have an emergency and not having coverage. It's really difficult to avoid medical care and uh, medical debt. Um, In fact, In fact, there was a recent statistic that really is scary that is the number one reason why people, uh, the number one cause of medical debt is not not being insured like people might think, but it's getting sick. So, so that is, you know, so just think about that and and think this is not your fault. You should not be ashamed of it. In fact, I'm really trying to encourage people to talk about the issue of medical debt. If you look at what's happened with student debt, that is what really got us some momentum behind this. People talking about the issue and being honest about the impact on them. And so we need to do the same thing for medical debt. Talk about it, recognize that it's not your fault. And I think that that will help with the mental anguish that you're feeling. Yeah, because there's, just like you brought up student loan debt, there's so much shame that comes along with debt.
0: And we've created this, society that believes that unless you're debt free like you're doing something wrong or you're you're not perfect whatever that means and so i you know that's one of the things that i i love to do with the show is have these conversations about these topics that maybe we might feel really scared to talk about because we feel like we might be judged or uh ridiculed for for being in debt especially medical debt but when when you're talking about uh you know that the system is kind of set up against you i mean hopefully that's really really bringing some relief to somebody listening. And it prompts my next question, you know, why are the costs of these medical procedures, why are they rising so rapidly? Is there anything that can be done about this?
1: I mean, I think that there's a lot of things that could be done. Um, so yes, absolutely, the 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 costs are rising on on procedures, but it's not just that the costs are rising, it's that the expectation of how much the individual pays for that cost and contributes to the overall cost is shifting. So wow. it's not, you know, I think it's a misunderstanding that it's just the the, the cost of the procedures are rising, it's also Uh, that the expectation that the individual pays more out of pocket and pays more themselves is rising. And so that is really shifting. What's happening is that insurance is uh, covering less and less of the costs and those costs are being shifted to the individual. So number one, premiums are rising. So it's hard to get good insurance, right? So you because you have to pay a high premium. And then you've got very high deductibles that don't align with people's means. So you might have a high deductible plan that's, you know, expects $3,000 out of pocket, but you don't have $3,000. I mean, we know that a huge percentage of Americans don't even have uh, $400 in savings, right? So, I mean, if that, if you add those things together, you're going to end up with a lot of people with medical debt that are simply based out of the deductible problem or the, you know, and being able to get a, plan that doesn't have a high deductible is unaffordable to begin with. And so, you know, the problem lies in a lot of elements of it. Yes, costs for procedures may be rising to some degree, but a lot of it is that the insurance companies are no longer paying as much of the costs and increasingly the individual is expected to pay out of their own pocket.
0: Why is that happening? Why why are the insurance companies paying less and less? Well,
1: it goes back to my original you know p- my original statement, which is that we have a, an incentive a system that incentivizes profit. I mean, the insurance companies are for profit entities that have to make a make their bottom line m- meet. Right, they have to like actually make money, right, right. Um, and that that's what they're driven by. Um, so what they're finding is that so so hospitals have to have people come in the door. Um, that have good insurance. And when they don't, they go to, after the individual to, to pay more out of pocket. It's really this big fight between who pays for the cost between the hospitals and the insurance companies that's going on. And increasingly, they're leveraging the patient in the middle of it. Um, and I mean, I'll, I'll say hospitals don't really want the um, individual to have to collect from the individual. But they're in that position because the insurance companies um, aren't paying as much. And they're not paying as much because they're looking at their bottom lines and they're not making as much money. So so hospitals end up increasing the price of things so that insurance companies will pay more. There's less and less people that are, have good insurance. So it's just like this constant fight and and battle about who's paying the costs. Um, And both the hospital and the insurance company are looking at their bottom lines. And increasingly, the people coming in the door have have, uh, less viable coverage that covers as much of the cost. And so the system is really just a back and forth between these two entities that are both fighting about their bottom lines. And it's the patient that gets caught in the middle.
0: Right. So we're like in this tug of war.
1: Exactly. (laughs) And we're
0: in the middle, right? Like we're the patient in the mud pit, right? Just kind of stuck in the middle. Exactly. Oh, it's so it's so infuriating. Wow. Well, I want to talk about the possibility of paying out of pocket versus going through insurance. So there was an article I read in uh, NPR, it talked about this woman who was charged somewhere around like $18,000 for a biopsy, that was before insurance, and then she ended up paying about $5,000 once everything had been processed through her insurance, but she then learned that she could actually negotiate a cash price and it would be less than if she actually used her insurance. So. You're the expert, like, what are the secrets we need to know about negotiating medical debt, either before or after the procedure?
1: Yeah, so I before I, I give some tips, if you will, I just want to say that I reject the idea overall. I just I need to say this. Like I reject the idea that we have to be consumers when we're talking about our medical care, and that is what our system has set up us up to do, that we have to negotiate ahead of time, after the fact. This is a time when you're sick. This is a time when you're ill. This is a, you're you are down and out and you've got to pick up the phone and navigate this complex system that you're trying to fight your way through the insurance company. company. what the hospital is saying. It's really an unfair position to put people in. So I'll say that first and foremost. However, that is unfortunately the reality that we are in. Um, And I just want to also add that there are racial dynamics to that too. Um, We we know that um, Black people in particular, but people of color in general, when they are set up for a negotiation, be it Buying a car or trying to get a mortgage, et cetera, et cetera. If they're in a negotiation position, they do worse um, in terms of the outcomes than white people. And so, when we're setting up our system to to force people to negotiate, that inherently will have um, poor outcomes for black people. And we see that in the numbers of medical debt, which disproportionately impacts people of color. So there's that, but. If people think that they need, and I think they do need to operate in reality of where we are today, which is, you know, a negotiation position, I would say a couple of things. First of all, for non-emergency situations, emergencies are really hard to figure out in advance. You know, you can't really plan in advance that much. (laughs) We um, wish, right but <laughs> I mean I guess you could sort of say like you like know basically know the hospitals that, that you could end up going to. And in an emergency, make sure you tell your family like don't go to this hospital, go to that hospital. And what I, what I say about that is know the hospital's financial assistance policy. So know which you know how generous they are, um, what kind of discounts they offer. All hospitals that are nonprofits, which is the majority of them, have to have some kind of financial assistance policy, and they sh- it's not always easy to find, but it is information that should be on their website and is legally required to be on their website. So, And you can call them and try to get more details in advance. You could do that before an emergency. You can do that before a planned procedure. So have a sense of what the financial assistance policies are and how you might qualify. Also, think about your insurance. Make sure you understand your insurance. Make sure that you know what the loopholes are, who's in network, who's out of network. Um, so those are the kinds of things that you you can do to protect yourself in advance. Um, once you end up with a bill, I mean, I think you can go to the insurance company and, you know, ar- articulate your concerns as well as to the hospital um, and or other, you know, healthcare providers. So there's, it's always worth your time to push back and to make sure you understand the bills, understand what your insurance changes. These are big bureaucracies, the hospitals um, and even the insurance companies. And so, you know, having to respond to an individual, it's time consuming. It can be very frustrating, but it often does literally pay off because you can reduce your costs overall and, um, you know, get to a more reasonable um, out-of-pocket level.
0: I know a couple of years ago, my husband had some surgery and it was, I believe, a couple of thousands of a couple thousand dollars. And although we could have paid it all in full, being a money person, I like to spread things out in payments. And so, you know, I called the hospital and they said, oh, yeah, you know, we have these various uh, payment methods. We could spend it spread over 12 months or 24 months. I don't remember all of the options. But it makes me wonder like what percentage of people when they get those those big medical bills are just kind of stuck in that place of fear and don't even know that there are some options like they just see that amount of money and either they think oh, I've got to put that on my credit card or, you know, I have to use all of my all of my savings. Uh, you know, I would imagine that there's a there's a large population of people that just don't even know that there are actually options.
1: I agree with that because it's overwhelming. Right. And, and probably this is in the face of other debts that you have, you know, on top of this, um, I would say, first of all, never, ever. Ever, ever, ever put it on a credit card. Do not do that. That is a very bad, poor financial decision because it will only increase the cost and it's not a good option. Most hospitals do offer either low or no in, no in- uh, interest rate interest, loans, yeah. right, at, at some rate. So th- what you did, I think, makes sense. But you also have to make sure you're careful you're not signing yourself up for like a lifetime of some additional monthly payment that's going to saddle you and what you can do economically going forward, because I see that often happens. There's a lot of pressure put on by collection agencies to individuals to just sign up and pay something month after month after month. And, it, and what we're finding is some people pay you know, a lot. And they're at great sacrifice. I mean, at, you know, some people argue, okay, people aren't able to pay for food because they're paying for medical debt. But also what about not being able to like send your kid off to a karate lesson or dance lessons or things like that? Those are to me, real sacrifices as well. Um, so be careful about what you're sort of signing up for. Um, always try to lower the amount before you even sign up for a plan. Um, I would think that you do that like
0: so you can you can tell them like this is the amount that you're showing for the plan, but I can only pay X amount. Yeah, I mean,
1: I think it's to me what I've understood is that depends on the hospital, depends on the circumstance. It's always worth a try. Uh, Honestly, it is always worth a try to see if you can get the amount down, what will be accepted.
0: And what about once it has gone to collections like we haven't been able to pay this debt what options do we have then?
1: Yeah, well, so first of all, it depends what collections means. I think that there's a, a misunderstanding. Sometimes the do- the debt is actually sold to a third party, in which case it's out of the hospital's hands. They don't own it anymore. It's important to know and to ask whoever's calling you who owns the debt. Like, where is it actually? Is it still belongs to the hospital? Are you a third party? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, also, you should know the rules and regulations for where you live. Depending on where you live, what can be done and and what um, a collections agency is allowed to do differs. Um, so you should be sort of cognizant of that. Um, there, and there have have been some changes recently um, that were made by the the three major uh, credit agencies that you should make sure that you're aware of. Number one, yes. um, starting July first, paid medical collections will no longer be on consumer reports. So if you paid off your medical debt, it shouldn't show up on your um, co- on your report. Um, you also have a year to settle any medical bills um, bef- that, uh, in term, before they can go on your credit report. Um, and this is a change from previously; it was six months. And then, beginning sometime next year in 2023, medical debt that's less than five hundred dollars will not be included on your credit report. Now, I know most people are more concerned about bigger debts, but know that if it's under four or five hundred dollars, honestly, I'm not even sure you really have to call the collection agency back in the same way.
0: plus they will never sell your data to third party or show you ads i think that's really important after trying out monarch for myself i understand why it is the top rated personal finance app and now listeners of this show get an extended 30 day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com/etm that's m o n a r c h m o n e y.com/etm for your extended 30 day free trial i'm going to be real with you J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash E-T-M. Go to joindeleteme.com slash E-T-M and use code E-T-M for 20% off. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I was paying for vacations finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Everyone knows that putting money aside in savings is really important. But then what? Should you keep your savings locked in a CD for a higher rate or keep them liquid in a money market? Can your checking account help you save too? Or is it about creating the right combination? We believe real banking is a conversation. Let's talk about the savings options that are right for you. Learn more at SandySpringBank.com. dot com. Member FDIC Wow. Well those those sound like some really important changes. I mean, especially giving people a year. To, to figure out the the debt, um, are are you seeing more medical debt since COVID? Has that increased significantly the amount of medical debt that people have?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. I feel like I'm always asked this question, and and the answer <laughs> is that it's complicated, um, because what happened during COVID is a lot of people stopped getting other medical care that was unrelated to COVID, right? So like people like procedures went down, elective procedures, and people just avoided going to the doctor. You know, people avoid leaving their house for a while, l- let alone going to the hospitals. Um, where COVID was really being dealt with. Um, so because of that, I think we kind of saw an evening out. Plus, on top of that, there were some very special um, funding streams provided by the federal government to support COVID. And insurance companies also did made some some important changes to support COVID-specific um, care. So those things, and which just shows you that when there's you know additional money either from the insurance companies or from the fe- from the federal government, it does help uh, with the actual cost of care, so that less gets uh, put on the individual. So it's a complicated story with COVID that I don't think we fully have unraveled. Uh, but I wouldn't say that you could necessarily conclude that the co- that costs went up overall, of um, or uh, medical debt went up sure. overall.
0: Fascinating. Uh... Now, I don't want to get into like a whole debate about socialized medicine here. That's a whole other episode. But there are a lot of countries like Canada around the world that seem to be, at least from the outside, maybe taking better care of their citizens when it comes to healthcare. And the US, it's always been lacking in how, uh, you know, who actually pays, like we just talked about this tug of war of who is actually paying for for healthcare. So you know, what about what about the government? Like what responsibility do they have? You know, who is responsible for fixing this medical debt problem?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I mean, I have to say it's, it's one a little bit above my pay grade. It's very like <laughs> um, and, and it's one, of course, I you know, I think about all the time and I and I, I get asked all the time. And I think, you know, this debate has been going on in the United States for all for a very long time. Um, you know, there was opportunities along the way to uh, to go towards a more, you know, and I don't know if it's like socialized medicine or, or more, you know, government supported. There's different versions in, in other places that, you know, do sort of support uh, employer based approaches or where the insurance is sort of uh, subsidized. But right, right, we have okay. decided in this country that we are, for now at least, that this is the system that we're, we've are we got, that we, you know, we have it's employer-based mostly that you get your insurance through. Um, but we've had to prop that up with with government programs. I mean, let's not pretend like government isn't spending money on this. Government's spending money in a variety of ways on our health and um, health care costs. In fact, you know, Medicare, Medicaid are some of our biggest costs in, in state and local budgets um, and at the federal level as well. I mean, we've, we we subsidize insurance rates at this point. That was what Obamacare did, um, which is gr- g- good in a lot of ways and, and helps make sure that more people have insurance and are less um, likely to have massive, you know, medical bills and have, importantly, access to care. Um, but we also have, a, you know, poor people are covered by Medicaid. Um, we have uh, Medicare, which co- covers in part people who are 65 and older. Um, so there's a lot of federal money that is, you know, supporting the healthcare system in the United States. Um, and the outcomes aren't really that great. And that's something because I think what we're also not doing is we're not putting money into preventive measures like social services that help keep people people healthy. And uh, I think that that's really undermining our our ultimate outcomes in terms of of health outcomes. So we're spending a lot of money. We're not spending it well or efficiently. Ultimately, a fair amount of the money in healthcare is going to support profits, um, which don't really help support, access, or outcomes in terms of the healthcare.
0: Yeah, I mean, we could go down like a whole slippery slope here. I mean, this is the stuff that I find fascinating, but, you know, if we start looking at like the food system in the United States and, uh, you know, even when you go to the doctor, a lot of times, you know, maybe very medically necessarily so, you're given a pill or a procedure. Uh, but not maybe talked about how to better your health. You know, maybe I, I don't know. I'm kind of yeah. going on a rant no, here, I but hear you. but I'm thinking like, I mean, there's so many layers to this that uh you're right, like there isn't any onus on teaching people how to live better and to,
1: to just function better right and so we end up what we end up doing is we have what we call sick care we don't have health care right <laughs> we have we, we react to people being already pretty sick by the time they come in the door because people avoid going in the door because they know they'll be potentially in financial ruin if they walk through that door i mean it, it is crazy we have people who refuse to go into ambulances when they're clearly hurt we have people that sit outside of uh, er rooms in their cars waiting to see if the pain that they're feeling will subside so they don't have to walk through those doors. You don't find Mm. that in other countries. That is a very unique uh, problem in the United States. Um, I would say, though, there are a couple of things that we can do right now within our system that would improve it, I think, dramatically. Again, keeping the patient at the center of this which one of my colleagues talks about it like this too they're like they're a patient when they walk in the door and they're like a consumer when they walk out the door or they're like a, you know Ooh, so yeah. it's like it's like all of a sudden like oh no now you have to pay and this is like a totally different shift but we at RIP think about a couple of things first of all We think about before the person walks in the door, should they have good insurance? Like, do they have good insurance? And so we support getting, ensuring people have good insurance, and that has to do with government subsidies, which we are, you know, in support of, right? Making sure that people have good insurance. Then once they're in the door at the hospital, ensuring that the hospital has Clear and robust financial assistance policies, which I mentioned earlier, that they are recognizing that low-income people that walk through their doors cannot pay the full expectation, even if they have insurance. So, if they, you know, if they have a two thousand dollars deductible and they're at two hundred percent of poverty, they're not going to be able to pay that two thousand dollars, and the hospital needs to provide that charity care to that individual and not expect it collect that $2,000. And then lastly, if you do end up with medical debt, ensuring that what we do to to collect that debt is humane, that we're not garnishing people's wages, that we're not taking away their homes and putting liens on their homes and their cars and really putting them in an economic bind um, just because they ended up with medical debt, which is, again, pretty inevitable in this country.
0: Well, I want to talk about RIP Medical Debt and what you're doing, but before before we do that, I I have to ask you like what you're obviously so enthusiastic <laughs> about this and like so committed to helping people. Like how did you how did you get into this field of of
1: medical debt? Oh I'm so glad you asked that. Um and thank you. I <laughs> I am passionate about this. I feel like I live and breathe this issue and I'm just so frustrated because I, you know, I think the United States could do so much better. It has so much potential and I just feel like we're we're we've got this thing really, really wrong. Um we're not getting a passing grade, that is for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um so uh my background's actually in social services. um, And I represented about 200 nonprofits that are operating in New York City for a while. Um, And I saw how they, you know, struggle to pick up the pieces of a lot of different economically, you know, broken systems. Um, And when I saw RIP Medical Debt was looking for an executive leader about two and a half years ago, actually just before the pandemic started, um, I jumped at the opportunity when I looked at the model because I understood that the issue of medical, that sits in, in this middle space between not just a broken healthcare financing system, but largely a broken economic system, too, um, and the brilliance of their um, solution. You know, working in social services, you see how much effort and work it is to help families and to provide um, meaningful outcomes and be innovative. Um, the cost of what RIP does and the amount of relief we can provide in such an efficient, unique way was so appealing to me. And in the process of doing that work, I can have conversations like this that elevate the, the brokenness of the system. So I'm doing two things. I'm both helping people really rapidly one by one um, and, you know, just, just getting the debt out of their way while also saying, hey, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't have to have this job. I should have another job. <laughs> you know, I shouldn't be working on medical debt. There's a problem that we have collectively that we need to solve.
0: That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot slash ETM to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash ETM. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time or just relax to a good book, Listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into The Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day.
1: So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club.
2: Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international best-selling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with Therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. I love
0: that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, lo- I love your passion. And I think it's so cool when. You have kind of two worlds that come together, and like your previous experience, you know, really couples with this this mission that you're really that are passionate about. And I I know you're doing a lot of work at RIP Medical Debt. You've wiped out somewhere around six point five billion dollars. We're actually at seven, seven now. Seven billion dollars. Okay, I mean that that's <laughs> a lot of money, and I know you're just getting started. So. Tell me more about you know what you're doing there to really help people get out of medical debt.
1: Yeah, sure. So it's really a be- beautiful um, and unique model. Um, it's we're, we're nationally focused, so we work across the country. Um, what we do is we pair donor dollars, so people donate to RIP, um, and you know people love donating donating to us because we have such an incredible return on investment. In which, if you give us. $1, it relieves $100 of medical debt. So if you give us $50, <laughs> um, you can get $5,000 of debt relieved. If you give wow. us $500, you can get rid of $50,000 of medical debt. You know, So the numbers just really speak for themselves. Um, and the way we do that is because we mimic a for-profit debt buyer. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, some hospitals do sell their debt to for-profit debt buyers. um, And there's a price that they pay. And that price is very low because likely the individuals who you're trying to get the money from that owe that debt don't have it. So they can only really collect on a small percentage of that portfolio that they buy. So the, the for profit debt buyer will buy the entire portfolio of bad debt that a hospital or other healthcare provider has at a very depressed price on the bet essentially that they will be able to recover some portion of that and they have to be able to price it low enough that they're going to make a profit. So that, but again, because most of the people in that portfolio likely don't have the money, it's priced extremely low. And so our model takes advantage of the market, if you will, in that way. And so we're able to buy buy um, large portfolios of debt, but we don't need to make a return on an investment because our investment is in the patients and in providing debt relief. And so by using donated dollars, we buy those large portfolios and then we just send letters to all the people that are in that portfolio and say, we're a nonprofit, we bought your debt, you are free and clear of that debt, hold on to this letter if anyone ever dares try to collect it from you. Wow. Okay. So, so how does somebody then qualify? So you cannot call us and ask us to relieve your debt. It does not work that way. It is source driven, meaning that we need to buy it and need, you have to be uh, sort of by chance in, in a portfolio of debt that we get our hands on and we're out there trying to get our hands on as many portfolios as possible. So we need healthcare providers to call us, not the patients. Um, so once, once we have our hands on, on that debt, um, you know we we obviously relieve it from every individual um uh, yeah i mean i i, I for, I'm sorry i lost my train of thought on that piece right there That's okay. That's okay. You were, you were talking about like who qualifies. Oh, who qualifies. Sorry. So who qualifies? So the people in order to qualify for our program, you have to be either 400% of poverty or below, um, or you have to have the debt itself has to be 5% or more of your income. And so that's really how we qualify people. It's people who are facing financial hardship in the way that we define it at that 400% of poverty or below, or the debt being 5% of their income or below. And so we do an analysis of the file once we get it from the hospital. And provided that you are uh, within those qualifications, you will get a letter. And that's usually the majority of the the file. I'm just thinking
0: if you are in that position where you have medical debt and suddenly you get a letter that says your debt has, I mean, my first thought would be like, no, this is not, like, this has to be fake, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then my second thought, probably followed very closely up, is just like, Oh my gosh, like how did I get so lucky? I mean. I'm I'm just imagining the stories you probably get from from people.
1: Yeah, I have to say that is the best and most motivating part of this work is hearing back from people who are like, "Wait, what? Really? <laughs> um, I can't believe this." And sometimes, but you'd be surprised, the debt could be a few years old and there's still that sense of relief of the mental mm-hmm, anguish being yeah. lifted and that somebody else without them asking went ahead and did something for them is really palpable. Um We get stories from people who are, you know, mothers that had complications during childbirth that, you know, unexpected issues with either the baby and NICU costs. We get stories of people who are dealing with cancer and we get stories of people whose debt we relieved a thousand dollars and they just couldn't meet their deductible, but they felt overwhelmed and ashamed about it nonetheless. So we get all runs the gamut of the stories that we get from individuals. And it is absolutely the best part of this job. And I will tell you that we share those stories with our donors. Oftentimes they're churches or corporations or individuals, and people love hearing those stories and knowing that they, because of their donation, made that difference in those people's lives. And so we feel like we're just a conduit to that.
0: Another thing I wanted to ask you about uh, as we're having this conversation, I, I recently had a friend who... She got diagnosed with something and she needed a procedure and she couldn't afford it in the US system. She had health insurance, but just couldn't afford it and actually went to the UK to have it done without insurance, of course. But she actually used crowdfunding to pay for her procedure. So that's just, that's just one example. But is crowdfunding, are you seeing this as a way that people are, uh, you know raising money to try and deal with their medical debt
1: I think people are trying to raise money to deal with their medical debt and I think them I know that the majority are failing so mm-hmm. I they I are- appreciate you know and if you even the the founder of goFundMe will say you know I this was not, uh, the intention, right. That's not why I created GoFundMe. It was supposed to fund like one-time projects and, you know, little things. And, um, unfortunately by far, the majority of GoFundMe pages are, um, related to medical care, um, medical needs. Um, and what's problematic about that again is, you know, people like your friend, which is great that she was able to do that. Um, it depends on who your friends are, if they are people of means or not, right? Yeah, so like that matters. And also like your story matters. Like you have to become like, it's like you're, you know, you're putting yourself out there. And you're If you're a good marketer, like if you're able to tell your story in a sob enough way, it'll like get a lot of attention. If you happen to be, you know, a kid with cancer, then you're going to get, you know, fully funded, if not beyond. If you're, you know, a 50 year old, like white man that lives in the middle of the country and just needs like medicine all the time that, you know, to, to live, like you're not going to get any money.
0: Yeah, you're right. I mean, and it's, I think it's sad, right? That, that this is where we've where we've come to, <laughs> yep. that we have to try to find all of these mechanisms or ways just to pay for having a procedure or getting something medically done that, that we need to. I mean, it just, I don't know, as we're having this conversation, it's just, it's really blowing my mind kind of the magnitude of, of what we're talking about and and the impact that it's having in, in people's lives. You know, what do you think the future looks like? This is a big question, mm-hmm. but what do you think the future looks like for Our healthcare system like are we gonna figure out a way to have a system that isn't leading so many of us into medical debt or into bankruptcy or
1: is this just kind of gonna be status quo I mean, I think we have to, like we have to, there's a, like, I just don't see, <laughs> um, I don't see how that this is not sustainable. I mean, I, I'm, I'm living and breathing this work every day and it's just absolutely not sustainable. We have to do something. Um, I don't think we have any other option. This is, this is, I mean, it's not even working for insurance companies or hospitals anymore. Um, so, uh, we, I don't think we have an option. Honestly, I don't think I could do this work if I thought any differently than that. <laughs> I don't think right, I could, yeah, you yeah. know, get up every day and fight this fight if I thought that we weren't going to somehow make moves. And I think we have seen some some progress. I mean, do I think we're going to end up with um, the perfect answer anytime soon? No. Um, but do I think that we will make medical debt is becoming enough of an issue and getting enough attention that um, it will rise to the level of things like climate change and, you know, sort Sort of things like that. I, I think so. I actually do believe that medical debt is becoming enough of a burden that um, our politicians were, are going to have to do something differently. And. Um and I think that there w- there will be change. And I don't know if that looks like additional subsidies. I don't know if it looks like um, taking Medicare um, and expanding it, you know, lowering the age proposals like that. I mean, honestly, there, there are things you could do. This this issue of, of medical coverage has been discussed in the presidential you know debates like last time around. And I think coming up um I, I believe that the issue of medical debt itself will rise to the, you know, the sort of presidential debate stage. And that's how you know an issue is likely to have movement, at least in the next few years. Wow.
0: <laughs> I think we all need to just take like a collective deep breath. I learned so much in this episode, and I'm so angered by the system, and I I hope you are as well. But I'm really happy that Allison, places like RIP Medical Debt, they're out there fighting the good fight to really deal with this issue at hand. If you want to learn more, you can head to ripmedicaldebt.org. You can follow them on all the social channels at RIP Medical Debt. And I really encourage you to donate to help fight this cause. I know myself and my husband, we're going to be doing this. We're so impassioned after this episode. And Allison also really wants to just encourage you to talk about this issue so it can rise to the level of attention and finally get solved. So as the name of this show suggests, we need to start talking money, but in an open, shameless, fearless way. So I'm going to encourage you today to just try that, maybe tiptoe into that. If you enjoyed this episode, I feel like everybody should listen to this one, but please share it with friends or family members, someone who you know also needs to hear about this baffling medical debt issue here in the United States. As always, you can head to the show notes for all the links to our episode guests, as well as the sponsors who make this podcast possible. I'll see you back here in a few days for a brand new episode.